In today's episode of the Into the Storm Leaders podcast, we sit down with Andrew Spot, the founder of Vividfront, an established, successful marketing agency here in Cleveland, Ohio, that runs on EOS. They're both a client of ours and have been for a few years, and a strategic partner of ours, a vendor as well. Andrew takes us through his story of becoming an entrepreneur as a kid, selling his first successful business that he had built while still in college, and every step along the way and storm that he's charged into to not only found and scale Vividfront, but also to launch a new business called HR Signal. We're really excited about this one because of the parallels and the sort of work that we do and how much of a game changer this new platform can be because it is a people-centric retention tool that gives you insights about your workforce you probably wouldn't find anywhere else. This episode does run a little bit longer than some of the others. I think you'll see why because his story is incredible and so is what he's created. Buckle up for this one and let us know your feedback as always in the comments section wherever you're checking out this podcast. Welcome to Into the Storm Leaders, the no BS podcast that ignites leadership potential and sparks innovation in the ever-evolving business landscape we all work in. I'm Joe Jurek, your host and catalyst for growth, joined by my co-host and Culture Shock senior coach, Pete Hansberger. Together, we embark on a journey to uncover the strategies, mindsets, and actions that drive truly exceptional leadership and winning culture. Whether you're an emerging leader looking to level up in your career or an accomplished executive seeking fresh perspectives. Join us as we uncover inspiring stories and thought-provoking insights from proven leaders and share practical takeaways that enable courageous leadership. Get ready to charge into the storm and become a catalyst for better workplace culture. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Into the Storm Leaders podcast. Today, I don't have Pete Hansberger with me. I'm really excited about the guest that we do have. This is Andrew Spott. And he's been one of the clients of ours at Culture Shock uh, with multiple businesses, one of our strategic partners. And I think you're just a pretty awesome freaking dude. Uh, I'm pumped to talk to you and have the, the listeners hear more about your story. Uh, I, I've gotten to know it pretty well recently. And welcome. Joe, thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so to, to kick things off, I, I really... I'd love if you could just introduce yourself, talk, talk a little bit about kind of how we got here today and anything that you want to share to kind of lay the groundwork in the beginning. I know we're going to dig more into HR Signal, uh, EOS, peak leadership, storms, all that good stuff, but tell the listeners who you are and uh, how we got here. Wonderful. Joe, uh, thanks for having me again. Uh, it's really uh, a special intersection of many ways we know each other and work together, so uh, it's cool to be on the show as well. I met Culture Shock, um, I think it was three three years ago, something like that. And I met Ron Kaminsky because I started a marketing agency named Vivid Front in 2009. And we had reached a point where the business was uh, running on EOS. We had self-implemented in 2017. Mm -hmm. We were growing, but we felt we had reached a point uh, in 2020 where we needed more structure and uh, better implementation to take the business to the next level. And so we did a search for EOS consultants and people who could help us uh, better implement the model. For sure. And we found Ron and, and, and Culture Shock here. And 
we had a tough decision picking who to work with, and we picked Ron. And it was, uh, for me, as the founder of Vividfront, a life-altering experience in a very, very good way. And for the business, um, we've recorded uh, incredible growth uh, since then, not just in headcount, but in, in revenue, and most importantly, um, in operational uh, sort of proficiency. Uh, we've become better at running that business. And so uh, I met uh, your team here um, from a professional implementation of EOS, and that has been part of, for me, um, a personal journey in entrepreneurship, um, starting the business 15 years ago to now. Um, the last five years I've spent trying to work more on uh, Vividfront, and implementing EOS allowed me to, to culminate a goal of leaving day-to-day -day operations, um, promoting our leadership team from within, um, to really run the business. And so uh, in EOS terms today, I'm, I'm a visionary and, and I'm in the owner's box. Yep. And uh, I'm lucky to have the incredible leadership of the Vivid Front Management team um, who runs the day-to-day -day business and, and keeps things uh, running smoothly and, uh, and our clients happy. Well, I'm glad EOS is a, a part of that. You, you're a hell of a success story for EOS implementation, but I think even outside of that, like, what you built and then hearing kind of your, your start into entrepreneurship and where you've gotten today. Like I, one of the things I was most excited about in this interview is getting to tell people about what you've built with HR signal. And we'll, we'll get more into that for, you mentioned EOS. I want to make sure if you are listening and you're not yet familiar with that, it's the entrepreneurial operating system, something that we operate on here at culture shock. We help our clients implement it as well. And just a radically simple way to run and grow your business. Simple, not always easy, but just a hyper-disciplined uh, approach to uh, being an entrepreneurial business, right? So it, what has, <clears throat> how would you summarize it? Like it, it, as you're explaining US to, to somebody else, maybe uh, somebody who's not yet familiar with it, if it's just someone in your network, how would you describe US? So uh, in, in life as an entrepreneur or in business as a leader working for a company, uh, you come across many business books. Um, these business books fall into categories of either self-help or leadership help or organizational observations, like what, what makes healthy companies, healthy teams. Um, I think what, what traction the book by Gino Wickman that, that is what started EOS, right. um, I think what he did with tact and genius is take the pieces of other best practices in place that are self-help related, professional proficiency, leadership related, and organizational uh, uh, sort of strategies and combine them into one model, mm. which is simple. And when I describe it to other people, I say, look, like there's no book um, on how to run a successful business. Um, how do you sort of uh, take something that would run a successful pizza shop versus professional services versus a product company or a software company, um, what would be in common with any of those businesses? Well, uh, EOS has found a way to create a common language for problem solving, for measuring, um, and for solving issues and accomplishing big goals that I think works with any business. And so um, I had my own skepticism in 2016, 2017 before we implemented it ourselves. Um, and luckily, um, you know, saw the value quickly. And I think that most people who I've recommended it to have also seen the value quickly. Yeah. 
you've actually, you've been exposed to it quite a bit longer than I have. It was just about a year and a half ago uh, that I joined Culture Shock and that somebody handed me the book Traction. And it has made a profound impact on me as a human, but also as a professional. And I I, I love it because I, I could sit here at the office and whether it's somebody's first session or their 10th and they're going through this, get to hear the different stories and some of the healthy conflict that comes out of some of the, the quarterlies and, and sessions as well, which is, I think, a part of it, right? It's leadership at the center, getting clarity around vision, using your values as a filter for decisions and getting healthy traction to grow. And to do that, you need to be open and honest. You need to fight things out instead of letting resentment, you know, burrow onto the surface and things like that. And uh, it, it all kind of connects with what we're talking about here today, and that's culture and leadership, right? They're big pillars in there. So I'd like if, can you talk to us, let's zoom back a little bit or, or rewind from there and tell us, tell us where you started. Like we're, we're in Cleveland, Ohio now. Uh, did, did you grow up here? What do you love or hate about this place? I think there's, there's plenty of both. I, I have an appreciation for it. I never would have had had I not left for about 10 years. Uh, but I, I am a truther and love Cleveland. Not everyone feels that way. Curious where your head's at. And just what shaped you? Like what What were your, your first you know, forays into entrepreneurship? And give us that part of the story. Uh, great question. Um, I'm a Clevelander, uh, born and raised. Um, I uh, grew up in South Euclid. Uh, later on, uh, I, I, we, our family moved to Solon, and I graduated from Solon. Um, went to Ohio State and uh, and was in Columbus for a while. Came back. So going going back to the beginning, um, I had a very, I think, uh, fortunate upbringing with parents that um, gave me both freedom to do things as well as the trust. Um, and the and the rules to to exist in to do things right and to to make good decisions and so, I recall, uh, being able to go out in elementary school on my bicycle and ride to a friend's house or ride to my cousin's house, um, without supervision. Yep. Um, taking sidewalks, crossing big streets, um, and being able to uh, run my own afternoon, uh, I think was a an executive function that. Uh, was really commonplace in upbringing for people my age and older, um, but isn't anymore. True. And so from a young age, uh, I, I saw that. Now, growing up, my father had an electronics repair business, um, TVs, uh, VCRs, radios, record players. And I had the joy of working in his shop from time to time when we had a you know bank holiday, school holiday, or in the summertime between different camps and things like that. And I was able to have the model of growing up under an entrepreneurial father, but not just entrepreneurial in the sense of business. He worked on things with his hands and fixed them along with his other team members. And that experience was amazing um, to see him uh, not just be in business, but but work with your hands and make things better. Yeah. And then interestingly, um, you know, I also got to see the the value of entrepreneurship because he was able to run his own schedule and he could pick us up from school or go to a special event. Um, it wasn't like he had to 
you know, have a certain bank of PTO days or hours to use. Um, so I saw that, that benefit. It was in contrast to my mother, who was a nurse at university hospitals and had a very rigid schedule. And yes, there is lots of flexibility. You can change your shifts. You can do many different things in, in healthcare. Um, but ultimately, she was sort of the other end of the spectrum, right? Where she's in a union and she's part of an institution and and um, is not making her own her own decisions the same way you would in, in, as an entrepreneur. Uh, so growing up with two parents at, at, at the sort of opposite ends of the spectrum from a career standpoint was was great because I knew both were great options. Um, entrepreneurially, at a young age, I got into you know lawn mowing and doing chores and tasks for people trying to um, make money. Probably shoveling snow. Shoveling mm-hmm. snow, and unfortunately, more than cutting a lawn in this city. Um, and I, I quickly realized that, um, there was two ways to make money. Uh, you could sell your time or you could sell an object, at least in those days, I only knew knew those two. Um, so if you you were mowing a lawn, um, you were selling a service. And so I would, the service was my time spent for a certain hourly rate. Uh, on the other hand, if you, um, could buy something and, and sell it, uh, you could have more of those objects for sale and and not necessarily be uh, earning based on your time, but based on your margin between what you buy something for and what you sell it for. And so as the um, internet age began, my father being, uh, you know, uh, working on computers and electronics and TVs and fixing things was obviously very technologically inclined. We had a very early computer with, you know, 14.4 internet and prodigy and, you know, early days of, of bulletin board systems. And, uh, I was able to sort of balance like riding my bike around the neighborhood and being a normal kid playing outside, but having really sort of early exposure, uh, to technology and the internet at a young age. I feel grateful for that because I, I too kind of straddled that border where the freedom of a bicycle and not having a cell phone and, and just getting outside with, with friends, that was life. A Windows 3.1 computer and some of the, we grew up with it. We grew up alongside it. And because of that, I, I think it's this unique kind of time frame where we can relate with those where that's all they know and those where they struggle with that a little bit more. But boy, it's fascinating. I, I'm intrigued similarly with with tech, with innovation, with new stuff. I worked at Sony Electronics for a long time. I wasn't fixing them, but uh, you know everything else you can imagine with with home electronics. Were you were you just holding the flashlight for dad, or, or did you are you also mechanically inclined? Like, did you like getting your hands on stuff and and building and fixing? And you know, it, it must be uh, a nature, not nurture, because I was um, I have this really vivid memory of uh, one of his employees was was working on fixing the main board of a TV. And I was like, what are you working on? And he's like, well, I'm trying to fix the, you know, this, this some sort of part is bad. We don't know which one. I was like, it looks like that one. And at, at you know, I was in elementary school. Um, I pointed out this part that to me looked different than all the other transistors or resistors or whatever they were right. on the board. And And sure enough, he pulls it, tests it, and he's like, says to my my dad, his nickname is Spot, so is mine. He's like, Spot, your kid's exactly the same as you. You can just look at it and know what's wrong. Um, So, you know, I didn't build that skill, right? Um, And I'm not really using it today. But, uh, yeah, I think that, that, you know, I have um, 
a deep uh, aptitude for tinkering, and I, I have done lots of uh, other tinkering beyond computers and repair and, and cars and things like that. And I like working with my hands, but um, what I've what I've found as an entrepreneur is that uh, working with my hands will only go so far. And so, um, to really create the lifestyle I want to provide my family, I've got to work on uh, you know monetizing decisions and um, building an income. Uh, in my life has been dedicated to trying to uh, build systems and companies that can produce value that's not derivative of what I do with my hands. Yeah. I think we we all self-coach or, or at times do things that are against our instinct of strength a little bit based on greater need. Like, have you taken the, the Colby A index? I have. Yeah. Do you remember what your Colby is off the top of your head? I can look it up online um i don't recall i i should have looked for that uh well i'm willing to bet that the implementer number yeah you want to just pull it up that the implementer number is probably in the the two to three range like it's funny how because i'd taken myers-briggs and disc and predictive index and found a lot of value in those different indexing and assessments but colby really tapping into how you get stuff done, how you take action, what your natural strengths are. Is this what your is this what it would be? Yes. Yes. I thought I I was anticipating it would be between two and four. And okay. It's four. So wait, your first number seven three six four. Yeah. So I mean the you can almost see the entrepreneurial spirit in it too when your quick start is higher like that. Uh I know with Ron Kaminsky your implementer, his almost fell off the charts where, you know, in, in what that tells us is somebody's inclination to be more risk adverse or to jump out of the plane and then put the parachute on. Uh, and mine is also like a nine. And at times, you know, that'll drive some people nuts and drive me nuts when somebody is very different in that action mode. But boy, does it bring great balance. And that's similar to, you know, with EOS, how there's kind of that visionary integrator combo. Uh, and I guess what what made me think of this, though, Andrew, is like when we have a, an instinctive strength, when we realize we need to work against it, sometimes it causes more, it, it causes cognitive stress or it sure. doesn't necessarily bring energy the same way that that stuff does. So we need to recharge in other ways. Have you found that in, there's plenty of reasons to do the type of work that you do, but have you found yourself like needing to restore energy in other ways or, you know, it, that it's gratifying for you in other ways, even though you're not as hands-on with it as maybe nature would tell you to be? So I think that, um, I have a natural gravity to rolling up my sleeves and trying to do things myself. And so um, it goes against my nature to trust people who I hired or promoted to do a job and, and stay out of the way. And so a big part of uh, my growth as a leader has been resisting uh, some things that might be natural tendencies personally to make the best decision as a leader for my team or my teams in the case of, of, of these these two companies. Um, you know, when it comes to, to balance, um, almost everything I do outside of 
uh, work involves using my hands to do things like woodworking or sailing or, yeah. um, you know, I like doing uh, home improvement projects, things like that. So that's where I sort of uh, balance the books on on strengths and weaknesses. I, I have sort of hobbies that serve that that itch. For sure. Yeah. It's cool to identify that kind of stuff and it, it's validating sometimes in yourself. And I think what you just said made me think of learner mindset all day and just perpetually growing, learning, adapting for the benefit of others, for your own benefit. And I think that's kind of a cool segue into talking about some strong leadership. And I, I would love your take on peak leadership. Like surely there's been some influences in your life. It sounds like while we didn't yet uncover all of them, like you've had some pretty cool steps along the way. And I'm guessing that when you think of a peak leadership experience and what you use as kind of a model for who you want to be with your teams and who, who we've seen you be for multiple companies, like that comes from somewhere. So we have all of our guests share, you know, their storms and their peak leadership experience. Cause I think it's, it's helpful to identify these characteristics and talk about, you know, what we're striving to emulate and whenever we do this. I, I like listeners to kind of do an honest inventory and self-assessment to think, you know, how am I doing in this way? And am I somebody else's peak leader? What do I need to do to become more people's peak leader? So you mind opening that up for us a little bit and talking about, you know, what, what shaped your mindset, what influenced you, what peak leadership looks like to you? So my first real um, leadership experience came in, in the early days of Vivid Front. Um, that's, you know, when I had, you know, 10 plus direct reports and was growing the team in the early days. And there's a lot that's commonplace today. The world moves very quickly. That wasn't commonplace 15 years ago. For example, um, when we were setting up policies, initially when, when I started Vividfront, it was um, contractors, subcontractors, and me. Um, and then I brought in a partner and it was the two of us and some contractors. And, and we had the jump of, of making W2 full-time you know, employment hires. And the, we, we partnered with a, an outsourcing, uh, HR company, a PEO that does like okay. a, a payroll agency. And they were like, so what are your policies? And we we're like, we were given like a blank handbook and I had to write like the policies, like, what are the policies? I'm like, okay. Um, and I remember this, this, uh, moment where. Uh, it's asking all these questions about, you know, time off and bereavement and healthcare and what's the, what does the company pay for? And, uh, my, my, my recipe, my secret was, um, well, it's the golden rule. So what would I want for myself? That's probably what somebody who works with me or for me would want. Let's just do that. And so I went through this whole survey and I was like, okay, you know, uh, what's the time off policy? It's an unlimited. If you need time off and you you can still do your job otherwise, then take whatever time off when you need it. It can be a half day. It can be a day. It can be a two-week vacation in Europe, whatever you need yeah. for your health and wellness and, and mental health, um, take it. Uh, healthcare, who pays for it? Well, the company does. Why should it come out of my paycheck? I wouldn't want that if I worked here. So, you know, paying for all the healthcare. 
And I, I submitted it to the HR outsourcing firm and they're like, you know, I call me and they're like, are you sure these are the valid responses that you want us to use to make your official company handbook? And I was like, yeah. They're like, well, no one's ever filled it out this way before written what you've written. Are you, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, like that's, that's pretty feels right. depressing that mm-hmm. other people haven't had this thought, but um, that, that was my thought. And so taking over the last 15 years, um, it's just an overgrowth of, of that methodology of, of, of the golden rule. Treat people that work for me or with me how I'd want to be treated. And if I use that as my, you know, homing beacon, yeah. um, I'll make good decisions or at least decisions that I would be satisfied with, maybe not everyone. And I think in practice, that's been an effective approach because um, it's it's audience-based. So I, I'm a marketing person uh, by nature. And I think about who's looking at a logo, who's reading a piece of, of copy, who's visiting a website. And so um, that's audience-oriented thinking. And so I just took the same approach intuitively on leadership and HR policies of, you know, well, who's it for and what would they want? Um, and I think that is really simple when you say it out loud, but, but in practice, it's been um, a really effective strategy of leadership. And it's one that I still, it's, it's my go-to today is what would I do? What would I want done to me or with me or for me if I was on the other end of this decision? Yeah. I love it. I mean, it, it's empathy at its and it's fine. That's right. Word for it. Yeah. You think about like, it, there is kind of a superhuman ability for those that can really anticipate needs of others, can really put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Are, are you familiar with the fundamental attribution error? Have you heard of this before? Sounds familiar. Okay. So, uh, it, this is one that we, we talk about in our uh, workshop on trust because we so often when there's issues with others, we attribute it to character flaws. When there's issues with ourselves, we attribute it to circumstance or situation. You know, we give ourselves more benefit of the doubt. And th- this wasn't this isn't something that's just in the U.S. It's global. It's kind of hardwired in us. It's innate. So that awareness and and that ability to really think what somebody else is going through, like we're humans, to to connect. You know, we, we, we see giving feedback and leading and coaching. The most effective ways come when there's connection, belonging, and high standards. Sure. And empathy, like you hear it over and over again, but it's not something you can just manufacture. But it is something you can, you know, get better at. You can grow your awareness around and take intentional efforts to apply more empathy to your, your leadership, your way of thinking. And it, it sometimes is that simple, right? It's so, so much that we talk about and so much in, in leadership and just people in general is simple, but not easy to do with consistency. Right. Uh, but I, I love that sentiment. So is there, how, how about any other like influences could coach, mentor, teacher, family member? Uh, it sounds like you're, you got quite a bit from, you know, both of your parents. They influenced you and probably served as peak leaders in a lot of ways. Anything else that that comes to mind, uh, as far as like some of the some of the traits that you most admire? When I got to college at Ohio State University, um, I I started a business uh, in the summer of my freshman year, which is online food ordering business um, for Ohio State and and 
Columbus residents. Um, it also included uh, a marketplace for for bar specials and other advertising that was non non food and drink. And we built the platform um, to have not just an online ordering feature, but also advertising. And so we had to sell our service of online ordering to every restaurant, bar, or corporation um, that that we could to make the business viable. And so we had you know dozens and dozens of uh, of clients. You have some archetypes of business owners um, on a on a college campus. Um, you have a guy who went to school and maybe never graduated and was working at a pizza place and now owns the shop. Um, you have someone who's a professional restaurateur who picked this this audience as a high volume you know location to run a business. Um, you have a franchise business that is owned by a franchisee that has a hundred stores. And we were meeting with the general manager of that location, you know, who used to be a busboy and worked his way up, um, corporations like Domino's that we worked with their corporate, you know, uh, national leadership to, to sell advertising. Um, I came across many versions of, of business owner and, uh, entrepreneur and, and, and leader. And so, um, when I think back to things that have shaped me as a person and what have I, you know, who have I learned from and what have I learned from them? Um, I had a number of business owners that took me under their wing in that client vendor relationship that I learned a lot from. Um, and in fact, uh, one of them who was a loyal client of my online ordering business, sloopymenus.com, um, was one of my first three customers. Hang on, Sloop. Oh, I like that. I see the OSU tie-in. Um, it was like a way to like to not break a trademark because uh, Hang on, Sloopy, the song, was uh, the intellectual property it had long since expired from the original songwriter. Um, but it was very Ohio State, but you couldn't, you know, right. call it Buckeye menus, you'd get sued. Um, so we, uh, uh, when I launched Vivid Front, um, basically a year after I had sold the Sloopy Menus online ordering business, um, one of my first three clients was one of my clients from Sloopy Menus, a restaurant owner who, uh, who, you know, was, was very happy to support my next move. And in the years when he had been my customer then, and and, in the years when he had been my customer in online ordering, um, he was, uh, took his time to explain decisions and why he would do things or what he would say yes to, what he would say no to and why. Um, so I was lucky to have a lot of mentorship in, um, people that were older than me as a 19 year old kid trying to sell every restaurant in town a contract. Um, and it was also interesting at, at that time in 2005, uh, we delivered online orders by fax to the restaurants. And so there were some restaurants that had digital point of sale systems made by like micros or Aloha, um, that could technically fetch some file on an FTP site. Right. But they people didn't, didn't have iPads and weren't running a swipe or a toast and no. Correct. <laughs> and most of them had, you know, um, a, a pad of paper that was like NCR paper. And when you fold the backing under the first two or three layers, you write down the order, you get a, a ticket for billing, a ticket for the kitchen and a ticket for your books, for your records. And that's how orders were taken. Um, and even the restaurants that had digital point of sale systems, they might not even be using them for more than payments right. at the register. Um, so, you know, we were, we were 
innovating technology, um, delivering online orders, this brave new world of e-commerce, um, and then delivering it with whatever method we could, which was, which was fax machines. Um, so we would, uh, have to have these conversations with owners and managers and entrepreneurs of these restaurants. And, uh, it was a really formative experience for me because you're, you're building trust and you're like the young whippersnapper talking to some guy who's my parents' age who owns the business. And, yeah. uh, that was, that was really big for me. That's awesome. Uh, j- just that, you that you built that and during that time frame where, there, there's a lot of innovation that comes with it. Uh, just working through whatever the barriers are to say, no, there's probably a better way to do this. Uh, on the on the mention of being fortunate enough to get exposed to some some mentors, having some other business owners who invest time sharing wisdom and such, there's it doesn't surprise me because I, I in my experience, those with a, a learner mindset, those who have humility. And I think many people without even consciously realizing respond all the time with, oh, I know, I know, I know. And you're not as inclined to invest time, like our, our most fleeting resource into sharing wisdom, into going out of your way to try to help somebody learn and understand and grow. If they don't have that learner mindset, and this is something we talk about all the time that look you got to keep it even later in your career you know this knower versus learner sure you you want to be somebody who can find solutions who can it has has knowledge uh, on your product or your craft or, or what have you but it's often so much more valuable to just ask questions and, and listen right and you, you'll be surprised what you can learn from whether it be adversity in a bad situation, or if you're fortunate enough to have some people around you that see that and then realize, Hey, it's, it's worth my time because this kid or th- this guy or, or whomever actually gives a shit and, you know, cares enough to, to want to know and to listen that there, there's something to that. Right. And for a lot of our audience are emerging leaders and those in kind of middle career roles. And that felt worth kind of pointing out just that learner mindset, how valuable it can be throughout all stages of your career. And I, I call attention to it because you've said three or four things that just make me think of that, man. Like, I think that's probably got to be a big part of who you are and why you've been able to do what you've done. And I'd like to... Uh, I want to carve out some time at the end to really get into HR signal, but I want to know more. I mentioned a moment ago about how you also learned from adversity. We, we also, you know, you grow through what you go through in a sense, right? And the essence of this podcast is talking about courageous leadership. It's talking about charging into the storm, dealing with the uncomfortable, uncertain, unfamiliar things head on instead of taking the seemingly more comfortable path and often letting those things become bigger and worse that you ultimately have to go through anyway. So let's, let's touch on that. What, what, what storms have you kind of charged into that, that are most notable? Are there one or two times that come to mind that you were uncertain 
and you, you felt like you could go two different paths and you chose one that was seemingly more difficult and got a better outcome from it. So, um, after I sold the online ordering business, um, I was approached kind of during and alongside that sale, uh, by a family friend and he had a lighting and home furnishings, uh, showroom, which was carrying the best lines, the best, uh, lighting products out there. And so, um, we partnered together, uh, formed a new company to do what I had done in online food ordering for, for restaurants and the business of lighting. Um, at the time you had to walk into a showroom and if you wanted a lamp, ceiling fan, a chandelier, you'd either point to it if it was there, the, you know, 1% of items that they stocked or, or showed in the right. showroom. And if not, you'd be sitting with some three ring binder or catalog. Um, flipping through stuff until you find what you want, but it may not be pictured in the finish or with the colors that you wanted. Uh, and so we wanted to digitize and bring the type of innovation we had done in food ordering uh, to the space of, uh, of of home decorating. And so we launched uh, a new company, uh, digitized a catalog of almost 50 different manufacturers' products, uh, more than 140,000 SKUs, um, which are items, and all of a sudden, we had a business uh, running, you know, e-commerce sales in an industry where we would receive them and have to then fax. You know, lots of faxing. Going lots on. of faxing. Yeah. This is this facts of life. So, mm. um, touche. We uh, uh, we we were doing great, and then, sort of, halfway through our first year, um, the two thousand eight. 2009, you know, Lehman Brothers, uh, mortgage banking crisis uh, sort of rained out upon the U.S. economy, and the result was an all but complete shutdown of the housing market in terms of like uh, getting mortgages and people buying houses, and then uh, the commercial credit industry, which finances construction and then restructures it once it's occupied for like long-term rentals or condos, um, that had also, which is a market we were selling to, had 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 been impacted. Yeah. And so we sort of had a, um, a phase of building, a digitizing a catalog, you're reinventing an industry. Then we launched the business and then we were operating the business. And then boom, uh, one day, uh, we didn't get any orders across six different businesses, six different websites. Yikes. And, uh, we didn't get an order the next day or the next day. I think it was about two, two and a half weeks went by no business. Um, I was, a year out of college, had already started the company, you know, just we pretty company. quick. Yeah. Um, and then now I'm like, oh my gosh, like the sky is falling. Um, what are we going to do? And that was, uh, I think it would meet your definition of a storm. And we were at this juncture where no one really knew how long it would be until the economy recovered. Right. Um, there were still proceedings happening with the government and all of this, uh, bailout. And I felt powerless to the macroeconomic situation of housing and government decisions and the behavior of, you know, everyone else in the world, uh, how they were reacting to this crisis. And so I decided to offer my, my business partner, um, to take back my half of the business without buying it because I felt like my time was the most valuable asset. 
And so sitting and waiting for the world economy, or at least the U.S. economy to recover, did not seem like a use of my time that was was worth it at that point. When you can pull all sorts of levers and it's still not make a sizable impact. If you're, if you're down to zero orders for weeks, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he took my offer um, and I had to reset my life. And so I entered a new storm of no business, no job. Um, and I had invested resources that I had into, you know, getting to that point. So uh, I conveniently had had the non-solicitation expire on the food business, online ordering business. And I was able to reach out and send a solicitation, so to speak, to contacts and clients that I'd had. And I said, listen, I, uh, I started another business in lighting with the housing market where it is. This is, uh, you know, not, not a good situation. So I've decided to get into a new line of business. And uh, for now, I'm offering consulting. I can do marketing consulting, business consulting, logos, websites, e-commerce, whatever you need. Yeah. I need work. Um, unbeknownst to me, in that moment of, of, of crisis, of storm, um, the rest of the economy was pretty darn healthy. And so what I thought was a dark moment macroeconomically was only a dark moment macroeconomically for one industry or two industries like housing and construction um, and financial services, but the rest of the economy was, was doing great. Yeah. And so uh, I got more interest when I reached out to my Rolodex that I'd expected, and that forced me to immediately um, hire contractors and uh, execute the work with help. And uh, six months later, I decided to incorporate Vivid, or maybe four months later, uh, to incorporate Vividfront and and start an, an agency. Still around today? Still around today. I'm doing quite well. And growing. In fact, we I mentioned you're a client of ours here at Culture Shock. We're clients of yours uh, with, with Vividfront, and we're grateful for that. Thank you for your business. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So it definitely storm worthy, Andrew, I, I would say, because uh, there's, it seems like quite a few different paths you could have taken there. And I'm guessing the one that you did probably wasn't the most comfortable. I imagine it was scary and painful at, at times. And I can relate. Like when you were describing that, it made me think of the similar, similar time frame for me uh, prior to culture shock. And it's, it's often those times that are scariest in the moment that when we look back, we're, we're most grateful for doing the difficult thing, trusting our body and kind of charging forward saying, I'm not going to just wait for this to happen to me or let it happen to me. I'm going to you know, grab the wheel and, you know, kind of write my own future. So I'm glad that you that you chose that path. Uh, I think, as as noted, there are a couple different storms there. And look, th this this mentality it's we didn't create courageous leadership by any means, uh, but by identifying it, I think that's often the trick: is noticing when you're at this crossroads of these two different paths and. Having, having the awareness to say, this is going to suck, but this is what my instincts are telling me to do, right? That's a good one. So I'm, I'm hard pressed to press you for more, but I'm guessing I with as much as you've done, like what else comes to mind? So another time you 
you charged into the storm or uh, perhaps even, you know, realized after you should have, but I'm sure there's plenty of storms with, with your, your journey so far. So what, any other ones you got? Through a, a friend, I was introduced to my co-founder in HR Signal, and he had the idea to leverage big data to predict who's most likely to look for their next position. And we uh, began uh, that, that idea, that, that concept, by building an MVP uh, and a prototype to test this, this big data concept. His background, uh, AI research and senior data scientist at a venture-backed software company. Um, and so him and I, we each brought a, a partner to the table um, he brought his his coworker, who is an even more talented uh, data scientist and and mathematics and AI person, uh, named Daniel, um, and my co-founder Sigi and I. We we I brought uh, Aaron uh, to my uh, to the partnership, and he was an experienced leader, um, having also sold a company to private equity. So the four of us were originally working on recruiting um, AI. Basically, could you predict? who is most recruitable. Yeah. And so that was the, the idea that started HR Signal. And at the time, um, we weren't yet uh, incorporated. Um, so this was, uh, you know, just four people working together on an idea. And we were doing a case study on our algorithm, trying to train it better. And we, this is in the fall of 2020, after COVID had started, we predicted that... Uh, a lot more people were, were ready for their next position, um, likely to turn over, mm -hmm. uh, than, than had in, in prior months. And so we argued with each other. We're like, who broke the algorithm? You know, what was the last code commitment we did? Um, this can't be right. And we were predicting like more than 50% of people in this case study were, were, were going to look for their next job. And this is at the time that we're like incorporating, uh, HR signal, or maybe we had just filed like a C Corp in Delaware. And we analyzed and analyzed and analyzed and we're like, wow, like what's wrong here? And, and, and it wasn't wrong. And so what we had uncovered was the early indication of a storm that was coming in the labor market. We had seen that people from March of 2020, when COVID-19 began through, this was like November, December, um, people had mostly frozen in their careers in the sense that maybe there were some furloughs or maybe you weren't furloughed, uh, but everyone was really in the same position they had been in in March. Not a lot of promotions or movement happening. Yeah. I mean, unless one hit because of your annual or something like that, but for the most part, um, people had stagnated. And so one of the factors that our algorithm looks at is how many months on average each job title is typically held in a region, in a company, whatever. Uh, and this, you know, one and a half million people that we were doing this case study on, uh, had stagnated. Most of them had stagnated and that sent our algorithm, uh, into this tizzy of like, you know, these people have been in this role for a lot longer than their peers ever were. Yeah. So we, uh, took a look at ourselves and a look at the data and we're like, you know, let's step back from this whole situation and okay. So there's something happening in the labor market. We think that a lot of people are going to change jobs because they've stagnated. Um, obviously, as they do change jobs, there'll be a huge boom of the recruiting industry. Well, we have this data. We now know that it is 
capable of making very predictive, very powerful judgments. Um, what do we want to do with our lives? And I, at the time, this was, I'm 13 years into running Vivid Front. Um, I'm already, I already had uh, professional help with EOS in the form of culture shock. And our leadership team had really taken um, that next step to, to removing me from as much of the day-to-day operations. And so um, I had a decision to make sort of with my commitment level to HR Signal and to VividFront. And the combination of predicting something that we had high conviction that was going to happen, which was a great turnover event, um, and the fact that I was at a point where I had a team I could trust to take over even more of my responsibilities, um, I decided to really uh, accelerate this plan of leaving day-to-day operations of Vivid Front um, and focusing more on HR Signal. Now, uh, what happened next was the Great Resignation. And so we had predicted it. We saw this earthquake coming uh, far far before anyone else had it on the Richter chart or Richter scale, right? Felt pretty good to, yeah. uh, to be right. And we were fortunate to have this phase of our startup where we had an MVP, we had a beta product, we were making these predictions at a time when you did not, in a, in, in a startup traditional sense, right, especially software, technology startups, it's like, here's this problem you didn't know you have, and, and here's our solution you didn't know you need to solve it, right? That's like many startups fall into that category. No doubt. Um, but this wasn't the case for us. Here's this problem. It's every headline of every newspaper everywhere. And you know that it's expensive because you just had, you know, three to 5% of your workforce quit in the last 30 days oh, yeah. to take another job. So we didn't have to convince anybody that was a problem. We had to convince anybody that was an expensive problem to solve. Uh, and so we were lucky to have this moment where uh, we could get in front of anybody. We could send any email or LinkedIn message. And I would say, hey, if I could predict who is most likely to look for their next job before they give you their two-week notice, do you want to talk to me about that? And of course, you get a lot of yeses. And so we had um, the dramatic influence of uh, a lot of people willing to talk to us and provide us feedback on their job as HR leaders and turnover and the nature of it. And so I was able to get a crash course in HR in the industry uh, really rapidly in, in 2021 that has positioned us for this, you know, uh, place we are today as a company at HR Signal, providing predictive analytics and and knowing sort of uh, how they can be used inside of companies. Um, and so, yeah, that that storm of the great resignation is really the crucible that HR Signal was born out of. It's, it's incredible. And I do feel like the stars aligned a bit with, with timing, but you also rearrange them yourself by predicting and then adjusting. It, it, you have to reserve the right to change your mind based on new data, based on new information. And sometimes that's the storm, right? And look, it's no mystery. It, there's been so much research, so much talk over the past few years about like culture isn't just this fluffy feel-good stuff. It's truly the center of your organization, like the leaders drive the culture. The culture is what's going to determine the well-being, the livelihood, the results uh, from your workforce. And with the great resignation, you start to see like this demand for 
companies to shift and to pay more attention to core values being lived instead of just in onboarding and to healthy leadership practices that would make people want to stay. And, you know, there, there's often, you hear it all the time, but you can hear it dating back to like the 20s of nobody wants to work anymore. And, you know, people don't have the same work ethic that they once did. And I, I think a lot of these changes have been for the right reasons and positive. And frankly, like a lot of the issues were because of poor leadership. HR Signal, when you first showed it to me and gave me a demo in this room a month or two ago, like I haven't stopped thinking about it. And uh, I've told quite a few people about it because having those sort of insights, like when I was leading a company, it's invaluable to know this is kind of how I stack up. It's a good indicator of our success and that could come in handy for, you know, sales, mergers and acquisitions and things like that. But also, more importantly, from my standpoint, is a better pulse of your people and understanding like wh- where to where to go to retain them. Because I, I am a believer and we talk about it all the time at Culture Shock that the best investment is in your current people. It's not spending more in hiring and attracting more talent. Like if you create the, the culture you're going to retain and attract better talent, but invest in the people that you have to strengthen your culture. And HR Signal is a tool and an, uh, just packed full of insights that I've not seen something else really give. So that's why I was eager to kind of continue the dialogue and looked at how, how can these, what we do to help leaders and help companies with culture and what you've in your team have built, like how can they complement each other? And to make sure that people have a, a good understanding, because you know, I, I knew it prior to today, but taking that conversation fully from the storm that you went through to now the formation, the introducing the world to HR signal, give us the elevator pitch. Like tell us in the simplified owner version of of this organization and the the need for it or the, or the pain it solves, like how, how would you describe it? How would you tell people about it? So HR Signal is a, is a software platform that gives leadership in HR or company leadership at large an advantage by understanding and predicting the most likely career path for everyone at the company and when they will seek that next position. And so we've consolidated all of the features you need in that role of retaining talent and developing talent in one place. So number one, the thing that got the company started, we predict who's most likely to look for the next job, but then we pair it with bespoke analytics for every employee that benchmark how someone is comparing to their peers in their career path. So that's based on the position they're in, the positions they've held, their education. And then we also provide market data, such as how much they should be paid in their region based on the average in that region, how much hiring is happening and how much demand for hiring is happening for their position in their region. And then using our corpus of data, which is more than 400 million people across more than 10 million companies, what is the most likely next position that they would have based on 
the experience they've had in their current position, past positions, education, and everything. And so all of that in one place enables someone who is interested in developing and retaining their team, all the tools are in one place. Mm-hmm. And instead of uh, having to hunt around for everything you need to be prepared to have a great conversation with somebody, we have consolidated all of it in one system. And so um, sort of the the hook or the silver bullet is that we can predict a lot of HR outcomes with people, with departments, with positions, with whole offices, whole companies. But the utility is in the day-to-day, day-to-day operation of serving your people and supporting them and and performance reviews and talent development meetings, um, supplementing those with the information at, at your fingertips. So maybe that was a long elevator ride, but yeah. Well said and w- well explained because it's something that that warrants some focus, some attention. It, like when we talk about retention, we talk about identifying who is most or like who's at risk and, and some of the things there. Let's just get straight into some of the objections that you might have heard or some of the concerns like where's this data coming from and if somebody's you know job is at stake in a sense or you know if, if the data wasn't accurate there i know you take this seriously and there's an altruistic you know purpose in this but it could cause some issues if it was giving indication with that were way off the mark right i mean overcome those for me or just tell me like as you've thought through the concerns and objections what uh, you know, what, what precautions you've taken? In uh, the most sort of rudimentary explanation of what we do, um, there's, there's two things. One is telling you who you should go have a state interview with today. Each, each week, um, our platform will generate alerts and tell you who to go talk to. Um, the other thing, the second thing is being prepared for those conversations mm. with an employee. And so, all that we're really trying to do is say, okay, um, when you went to hire somebody, uh, you asked them questions. Do you like what you're doing in your current job? What do you want to be doing a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? What do you want more of on your plate to help you grow? What do you want less of on your plate? Where do you feel like you're a natural and what's a struggle for you to do? Strengths and weaknesses. Um, then you get hired. And then... Each year, you have an annual performance review, and your manager in most companies, I'm speaking in, in a majority sense, uh, they're going to look at your sick days. They're going to look at your 360 peer feedback. They're going to look at some of the goals that they might have talked about in the last meeting. And probably before you stepped into that room or they stepped into that room, there was a decision. This is what your comp's going to be. This is the role you may or may not be offered. This is sort of your next step. And so people... Um, get that once a year. And because they get that once a year, you come into that meeting with nerves. You come into it with your own narrative of what you think might happen or what you would say if your supervisor says this or that. And what we have noticed and what the industry um, sort of uh, rule is, is that you have these conversations once a year. So we're saying, okay, that's, that's fine. You know, keep doing that. But um, there's certain points in time when people are likely looking for their next position. So how do we come to that conclusion? Well, we look at three different types of data. More than 200 data points fall into these three categories. 
One, we look at peer. When I say peer, what I mean is we have 400 million public resumes and career histories that we've acquired. And we look at that to understand how is a typical name a position, how long are they at a company? What position do they have before they got to that position? What position do they get to next? And how long are they in those positions for? What education along the way um, drives those outcomes? And so we've analyzed this more than 400 million person data set anonymously, looking at the parts of it that matter to our algorithm, which is what, what position, which company, and for how long, et cetera, city. So those are indicators of healthy it, culture or likelihood of retention or... So we know, for example, that um, if you're a sales person, you're in a sales role, account executive, sales executive, whatever. Um, we know through the data that most likely most people who are sales managers were not promoted from that pod of team members that were sales producers hmm. because... Well, a couple of things. One, there's cultural reasons why, like it's hard to become the boss of your colleagues. Um, the other is because they're different skill sets. So one is a management supervisor role, sales manager. The other is you have to be really good with people yeah, and with explaining and follow-up and, you know, uh, reciprocity and, and, uh, consistency. Um, so if you are a, uh, salesperson, and you've been in a job for, say, I don't know offhand what this number is, but say you've been in this job for 36 months, but in uh, in general, this just job title, most people are in the job for 27 months. And so it's, you've been there for longer than your peers. Um, that starts to matter because people either grow. Typically in a sales career, you grow in seniority, which means you have a bigger base salary and lower commission as time goes on. Uh, or you leave. But few people, at least in our data, for example, have been a, in the same sales representative role for, say, 20 years. Yeah. So that's one of 200 factors. That's, that's pure data. Um, another category of data is public data. The government, whether it's the BLS, the IRS, or the SEC, is publishing a wealth of information about labor markets, about regional uh, labor markets, different roles, different positions, from different types of employers, private, public, and otherwise. And we were able to analyze that data that's largely macro, some of it micro, um, to correlate it to outcomes. So ultimately, our algorithm is taking um, those two factors and adding a third factor, which is market data. So we buy salary data. We buy data various sources of salary data. And we also buy job data. How many jobs are posted for each position in each city? And how long do they take to fill? Those two points help us to understand supply and demand. So the supply is the number of people that are holding a position. And we have that, right? Because we're we're analyzing this corpus of public resumes of everyone in, the, in North America and and some of Western Europe and some other countries as well. Uh, that helps us to know how many people hold the position. And then we can see the current price for that position, which is the current average salary. And then we can see how many people are posting ads for that position in the city where someone's located. Hmm. So three buckets of data 
there's hundreds of factors that, that are fitting into those buckets. And over time, our algorithm and what we've produced is looking at those factors and making predictions. And then we correlate it to the data that's behind the uh, algorithm to figure out which ones are having correlation. Now, we don't have causation. We don't know that somebody had a bad conversation with a supervisor and quit, and that was unrelated to anything. So there's some noise in the data, but directionally we're accurate, meaning uh, when we tell one of our customers through an alert in our platform, go talk to this person, we're right. Better than a coin flip, far better than a coin flip. Yeah. And so that's that's how that works. Now, um, people will say, you know, well, is this, uh, you know, what are you doing? Is it invasive? And it's completely not, in fact, we are GDPR, CCPA, Bill 64 in Canada compliant because the only data that we touch is, is either this public data, which is data that's already published by governments or companies or um, people's resumes that they put online. Uh, and what we don't do is look at your emails. We don't look at your attendance. We don't have any access to that information. And so in the space of employee retention software, there's really like four types of companies. So number one and most common is employee sentiment software that is surveys where you're being texted or, or sent an email. Right. Um, how do you feel about your job today? Um, well, very few people are going to use that as your medium to say, I don't like my boss or I don't think that my last performance review went well. The likelihood of a candid response, probably not too high. Pretty low. Um, then you have data analysis. So companies that integrate with an HR system and look at all the data that we don't look at. Demographics, age, um, spousal status, dependence, uh, benefits, uh, performance, um, peer reviews, things like that. Uh, it's a better look at data that you already have that maybe you're not as good at looking at as this software is. Third category would be spyware. Uh, there's a lot of workforce monitoring softwares that became very popular during the pandemic focused on remote workforces. Like, mm -hmm. is this person sitting at home doing any work? Um, so some of those platforms also predict turnover because they're key logging. That's the right way to improve culture. Right. This big rub. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so the fourth category is predictive AI. And so we're using, um, and, and sort of, uh, uh, the biggest way possible, as much as we possibly can, uh, of data that is non-invasive and is non-private, um, not breaching anyone's confidence or confidentiality or, or things that they don't, but wouldn't want anyone else to know, right? Which is like your employer has a lot of that information, right? If you have a, if you have a disease or if you are paying alimony, right? Things like that. We don't look at anything like that. And so, uh, we're this fourth category of, of ethical predictive AI. For those listening, like when you think about how much turnover costs your company with all the studies that have been done about the average cost of you know, onboarding a new employee and uh, the loss of performance during that time and all those factors, like it, it's, it's mind blowing. It's in part informed our stance on invest in your humans, invest in your people to, to keep them, to in develop them to demonstrate that you're committed to their long-term growth. If you had a snapshot of every employee in your organization that with a way better than a coin flip, fairly high degree of certainty told you those who are at highest risk of leaving 
does it give you some it gives you some sort of a time frame too right of predicted these are more urgent Three than others months is the high uh, urgency ones that wouldn't that be a game changer it doesn't that just it, it and from that you're not recommending hey go fire this person you're saying go talk to them like what that recommendation is a stay interview a stay interview yeah right. we provide a template if most employers have one already but and some, it. sometimes it is as simple as that we talked before this kicked off about being anonymous is the killer of engagement people not being seen not being heard that's right involved and simply that conversation or stay interview can go a really long way and the data the data is interesting so uh you know we look at these outcomes right like we made a prediction what's the outcome the biggest leverage point on the outcome after we make the prediction is just whether or not our customer goes and has that stay interview conversation yeah. it doesn't I mean, it matters but it doesn't matter nearly as much what was said what wasn't said whether or not they are getting promoted or a raise or any sort of change in responsibilities, all of that has less of an impact on the outcome than just the conversation. Why? That's what I said before. People have this conversation sometimes only once in their employment history with an employer, which is before they were hired. And so prompting that is a very special thing. And it's being prompted not because you're in trouble, not because it's your anniversary of being hired, but because your employer cares, they want you to be still employed there. They want you to be happy. And that intent is felt when you have that stay interview. When you do a once a year performance review, like I, I've been a part of some very poorly given, I've given some poor performance reviews. You know, when I was first, I jumped into a, my first leadership role when I was 23. It feels almost robotic and just it's perceived as so negative because the stigma around it is, all right, it's the, I'm either going into this thinking I, I better be getting this race or, you know, oh, great. I'm going to get told all the things I'm doing wrong. And the companies I've been a part of who took that approach rather than doing them more consistently, you know, it was almost that naive thought of, well, everyone knows where they stand at all times. Like we don't need to do this. And just that simple attention and care enough to carve out someone at one time like I, I was always a big fan of the caught you doing something good pull you off to the side give you the the compliment the acknowledgement but with eos we talk often about a quarterly check-in with each person and we make a effort to do it in an atypical setting so like get out of your space it should feel nothing like a performance review do not sit across the desk from each other where it is confrontational. Not recorded, no go, notes, yeah. Go walk. If you can, go walk outside and just have a conversation and say, how you doing? Like, wh what do you think you're doing well in? Where do you think you need to focus more effort? Where can I help you? What, what ideas do you have? What If you just go ask somebody questions without even giving them much feedback as long as you've set good expectations and your questions are about how they're how they and you are living up to those expectations it can make just a huge difference it's again simple doesn't seem easy because we're all so busy there's so never enough time and we're just not great with time management because we're exposed to so many things on a daily basis now but we make time for the things that matter most 
and our people should be number one. And whenever we hear a leader or a manager say, I just don't have time for that, it's like, look, you, you kind of need to fill that in your calendar first. Right. Make time to truly connect and have a conversation, ask a few questions with your people to pulse check, see how they're doing and show that you care. One thing that's interesting about uh, what you just mentioned is, uh, so one one revision I would make, there's a fly in this room, so. It's, it's, it's we're doing a great job of ignoring it, except for it's the a little guys, guys. but um, somewhere there must be a banana in here. Uh, the, uh, no bananas. No bananas. Um, we instruct our customers to have this day interview conducted by either someone from HR or boss's boss. Mm. Because so many times what comes out in a candid conversation, such as the 90 day check-in with the EOS or, or stay interview is perhaps some feedback that no one's heard before about a supervisor dynamic. Yeah which can be between 40 and 70% of the reasons why people leave jobs. You know, you always hear, you don't leave companies, you leave people loss. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll get the pushback of, well, well, I don't have, you know, if I'm talking to like an HR person, well, I don't have time. Right now it's the supervisors do that. I was like, well, who hires their replacement? Like who's interviewing the first wave of candidates oh. before the supervisor gets to meet your top three? Um, what do you want to do more of? You know, do you want to have one occasional conversation as prompted by our platform? Or do you want your, you have 20% turnover. So, uh, you know, one in five people, uh, every year you're, you're doing 30 interviews. So, uh, choose your destiny. Right. And, and so that's, that's been, um, a, a good, a good pushback. And then uh, the other thing that I wanted to say, which is unique to EOS, and if every company ran on EOS, I don't think HR Signal would have as big of a market to go after. Uh, oftentimes, at least in the implementation we've had at, at Vividfront, the quarterly conversation is not necessarily done by a supervisor, but by the, the head of that department or function. And so by nature, um, the quarterly conversation is taking place with some distance between a person and their and their supervisor which especially was a walk off site, um, invites a lot of candid feedback. Uh, and oftentimes that type of candid feedback can only be acted on if it's given in a, in a moment like that, where someone feels safe and vulnerable and it gives the employer something that they can address. And sometimes, you know, I, I tell the story a lot. Sometimes supervisors are, are harmful to their direct report, um, not out of bad intentions, but an intent to do their job well. So back to the sales manager example, uh, say you were talking about promoting a, a salesperson on a sales team and you were the sales manager. Why would you promote your top producer? Then they're off your team mm. and they're running their own team. And how do you make your goal as a supervisor when you just promoted one of your five guys or girls and now you have four people and, and your best salesperson is no longer on your team? Just because they were the best salesperson does not mean those are all translatable skills to the leadership role, right? Whole other fact. So often uh, is what turns into these, you know, bad manager situations or unhealthy workplaces. That's right. Uh, and there, there's so much with this, and I, I hope it's introduced it well enough for for people to get curious, to to want to explore more. 
we've done a lot of work in the past with culture where we have an online assessment. We do much more hands-on consultation of let us review your internal systems, your LMS, your intranet, see how your leadership is interacting with the field and what steps you're taking so people don't feel anonymous, so they feel involved and uh, do one-on-one interviews with cross-functional people to try to unearth some of that because people fear speaking truth to power. And if leaders don't make it absolutely clear that they want open and honest criticism and they should not, the the employees don't need to fear repercussions, it's not going to happen very often unless you take intentional effort to do something like stay interviews. But That's right. this has been something for, for us that just complemented those what we've helped some clients with so well that between the online assessment, being able to partner with you and get this in front of like these insights in front of people, we know it's not going to just help the company, but it's going to help their humans. And that, that fits in line with, with our mission, right? To discover, engage and grow leaders and to, to do things that help create more healthy workplaces. We're near the end. We could, I could talk about this all day, but I want to be respectful of your time because I know you got some other stuff going on. You're kind of a busy guy. Uh, I want to ask you, though, any advice or recommendations for emerging leaders, middle managers, folks that are a little earlier in their career looking to step into a more major leadership role? I think that the number one advice I would give to someone who's trying to climb the ladder in any organization is to anticipate the needs of your team, your supervisor, your 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 mission in, in the organization, and prototype the behavior of the role you want to be in. So if you are um, seeking that next position, think about what you'd be doing in that next position and behave that way. Um, managers come with agendas to meetings and Uh, managers are reporting to stakeholders. And so say you're in an entry-level position, uh, come to the meeting with your manager and say, I'm sure coming from this meeting, you'll need to report to someone else on how I'm doing on this, this, and this. So I prepared a report for you of exactly what's going on with my project. And you can just forward this to your, to wherever it goes from your desk. Um, That type of uh, sort of um, prototypical behavior, I think is the number one way to rise quickly in a corporate culture yeah, because you're making people's lives easier and you're playing chess, not checkers, meaning you're anticipating the move after your next move for sure. And how it impacts the other side. You're earning some trust and credibility along the way. Exactly. How about for executives looking to improve culture? I think it's critical to be unconvinced that what you're doing is necessarily the best or only way to run your company culture. And so I think uh, improvement requires humility, being humble, and not knowing what you don't know. Because there's a lot of confirmation bias of what you did as a leader, the decisions you made that you attribute to your outcome of of where you are uh, as a company and as a culture. But uh, you may have gotten there despite some of the things that you think are good and and true to do. Um, And so I think that uh, 
really that ego death is really important when approaching a cultural reboot. Um, I love that expression. Yeah. So that's, that's a longer conversation. It is. It is. How I know about that work. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's the number one advice is to be, to be humble and to not assume that what you did is why you're there, but, but you could be despite those things while you're there. It gets harder and harder and you get less accountability. You get less perspective, the more senior you get in your career. Right. That's right. And if you just assume that you have a good pulse of the organization, you're probably wrong. Right. There's always something you don't know. Uh, so I, I love that sentiment. How can people find out more? How can they find you? How can they find out about the HR signal? What do you want to leave the listeners with uh, as far as, you know, where, where to go next if, if they want to improve retention, improve company culture and leverage what you've built? So, uh, hrsignal.com, uh, is our website and lots of information there. Uh, and if you're looking to uh, grow a culture, a healthy business and, and keep your people happy, HR signal is here to help. Uh, and if you're looking to grow your revenue, um, or your brand vivid front is also here to help. No doubt. Andrew. Awesome. Thank you. I, I think this was, hopefully people found it valuable. I enjoyed the hell out of myself. I just love talking to you about this and, uh, I'm, I'm honored to have you as a client, as a vendor and as a, as a friend, as somebody I can sit here with and have this conversation because I have a lot of respect, uh, for, for what you're doing. And I think that there, there's gotta be a lot of beneficiaries of, uh, the, the product and the, the things that you have created. So it's very motivating. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man, uh, for, for the time, for the, the sentiment, the wisdom, and for sharing with the audience. So with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Appreciate you much. Uh, you will find Andrew. Uh, wait, how do they get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? Carrier Pigeon. The carrier. Okay, well, fax machine. Exactly. Right. Machine. right. Fax, right. fax number four. Good callback. Uh, uh, Andrew uh, at hrsignal.com. Awesome. You'll see that in the description. Uh, there's going to be quite a few uh, other resources, show notes, links, and things like that that you can find pretty much anywhere you're watching or listening to this. But again, thank you, Andrew. You're the man. And best of luck to you, your teams. Uh, I feel like they're very fortunate to have you leading the way. Thank you for your kind words. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Thanks, Matt. Take care.